Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Just last Saturday, I arrived here in Puerto Rico, happy to find the island pretty much the way I left it. I mean, yeah, there were some dead uh, from-froms lying on the ground, and it was a little bit uh, more disheveled than, than normal. The lawns were not quite as pristine. But all in all, everything looked pretty good. And I was very, very happy that Hurricane Irma had spared Puerto Rico its wrath. It, it missed the island by quite a bit. I think it was 50, 60, 70 miles to the north. So we got rain, we got wind. Uh, But nothing big. Yes, the power went out, which is typical here in Puerto Rico because of the low quality of the government run power company. You know, you look at all the debt that that the power company here has and you wonder where all the money went, because obviously it didn't go into the grid. Obviously, it went into the pockets of government employees uh, who ran uh, the infrastructure into the ground. But nonetheless, uh, I was relieved. And of course, to look at some of the devastating photographs of some of the other islands that weren't as fortunate, that took more of a direct hit as the eye passed over. And, you know, some of these islands are completely uninhabitable at this point. I mean, sheer decimation. Unfortunately, Puerto Rico uh, may share their fate because now there is another hurricane that is coming here. Maria figures Hurricane Maria would make a direct hit. Uh, on uh, on Puerto Rico, but it's right now a Category 3 hurricane. It's not as big as Irma, and Irma was a Category 5, but Maria is estimated to strengthen to a Category 4 and maybe even a Category 5 just in time to hit Puerto Rico. In fact, if you look at the National Hurricane Center's 
forecast, the most probable course has the eye going right across Puerto Rico. So what uh, Irma uh, left alone, right? Uh, Hurricane Maria is coming to uh, to you know to finish the job and to make sure uh, that Puerto Rico doesn't uh, get away uh, unscathed. And you know, it's I don't know if it's fate. I mean, maybe Puerto Rico was supposed to be hit by that hurricane, and the fact that it missed it just you know now they have to come down and send uh, and send Maria there. But look, you know, Puerto Rico hasn't been hit by a Category Four hurricane since sometime in the 1930s. So these things are rare. We just barely missed one uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now apparently we're going to take a direct hit from another. Now, of course, nothing is for sure. I mean, the course can change ever so slightly. This hurricane is not nearly as big. I think the hurricane force winds extend for about 15 miles on either direction of uh, the core, whereas in, in uh, Irma, it was 70 miles. So obviously it's a smaller hurricane, so more islands might miss it. But if the eye goes right over Puerto Rico, I guess it doesn't matter how big it is, you know, because the eye is where all the, the strong winds are on the wall right around it. And so if that hurricane goes right over Puerto Rico, I guess it doesn't matter whether the winds stretch 70 miles out or 15 miles out. It's enough to, you know, cover the island. And uh, so this, this could be a terrible storm. I am leaving tomorrow. Hopefully my flight doesn't get canceled. I was supposed to leave on Thursday. I am heading out to uh, Aspen, Colorado to speak at a cryptocurrency conference of all places. So I, I moved the flight out to tomorrow so I can get out ahead of the hurricane. It's supposed to come either late tomorrow night or early Wednesday morning, but I'm hoping it doesn't pick up the pace or something and my flight gets canceled. Because if that flight gets canceled, I mean, who knows how long I could be stuck here in, in Puerto Rico, and who knows what the island is going to look like uh, while I'm here, and if I'll have internet, power, phone, whatever. So hopefully I get out and get over to uh, uh, Colorado. You know, to me, this is very reminiscent of when I went to Las Vegas to speak in front of the Mortgage Bankers Association. I mean, I really feel like I'm stepping into the lion's den, coming into a conference you know, about cryptocurrencies. Of course, everybody there is going to be very enthusiastic about cryptocurrencies. I could be the only person there who is going to be, you know, raining on that parade. In fact, I think that is why they're, they're bringing me there. And they actually, you know, they paid me to come. So, you know, they wanted uh, somebody there to, uh, you know, to have uh, a different point of view. Uh, but, you know, we'll see what happens with this. I mean, if you haven't seen my mortgage bankers uh, speech, uh, Go check it out on YouTube. I mean, obviously, I was very prescient there when I went there in 2005 and then even more in 2006. And I warned 3,000 mortgage bankers that the real estate bubble was going to pop. Well, I'm going to do the same thing for people who own cryptocurrencies. I'm going to be telling them that the crypto bubble is about to pop. This is even a bigger bubble uh, than the real estate bubble. And, you know, real estate didn't go to zero. And that's where these cryptocurrencies could be headed. Now, you know, they may not go all the way to zero for a while. I suppose there'll always be some kind of optionality in that. People could be gambling in them. I mean, you have a lot of stocks that go bankrupt and they become penny stocks, but they don't even go to zero. They still trade. There's still people in there buying and selling. So, you know, I'm sure they won't go all the way to nothing. But I think for practical purposes, if Bitcoin falls from 4000 uh, to 4 bucks, it doesn't matter that it's not zero. I mean, you've practically lost all of your money anyway. It doesn't matter if it's completely 
uh, zero or you've just lost, you know, 99% of your money. But uh, so I will be talking about that. I think they have me debating some people. So I should have fun. I mean, I usually enjoy, you know, being the contrarian. I mean, here, though, the, the people who support uh, the cryptocurrencies, they think they're the contrarians, right? They're anti-mainstream, right? They're the libertarians, the free market guys. And so now I'm a contrarian to them. You know, normally I'm a contrarian to the more establishment people, right? The mainstream Republicans, Democrats. But now I'm a contrarian to the contrarians. So I, uh, I'm continuing this. And actually, I guess I'm, I've aligned myself, right? You got da- Jamie Dimon came out and said uh, Bitcoin is, uh, is a fraud. So now I'm kind of uh, in his camp, although I don't agree with everything that Jamie Dimon said. And I think that there are problems that Bitcoin has that he doesn't even understand. I mean, he just assumes that the government is going to shut Bitcoin down. And, you know, if it actually worked, he would be right. See, I don't think the government's going to shut it down because I think it's going to shut itself down. I think there are problems that will cause this thing to collapse even without the government doing it. So the government doesn't have to kill it. It's going to it's going to die of natural causes. Now, I don't know if they're going to be recording any of this stuff. They probably will. And so maybe my presentation will make it uh, make it on the Internet. Those of you who are going to be there, I will see you there. I'm speaking on Friday, I believe, in Aspen. By the way, Bitcoin has recovered quite a bit from its initial collapse. You know, since hitting a high of 5,000, uh, Bitcoin sold off below 3,000. It got into the 29s, which is something that I thought was going to happen. I thought if we broke 4,000, we were going to go and get below 3,000. But I also was expecting a bounce, and that's exactly what we got. In fact, it bounced very quickly. As I speak, we're right around 4,000. This is the highest we've been, although the high today was 4,100, at least on the exchange I'm looking at, Bitstamp. There's a bunch of them. So who knows where the high was on different ones? I happened to pull up this website. But uh, the high was around 4,100, which again is what I expected. Now, here's the question. If Bitcoin cannot get out of the low 4,000s, 4,100, 4,200, if it runs out of steam here, right, it doesn't go and make a new high. It doesn't get above 5,000 again. If instead it goes back down, below 3,000 and breaks 3,000 support again and starts trading maybe 3,800, 3,700, then I think we can go all the way down to 1,000 very quickly. I mean, this market can move and it moves fast. I mean, you have, uh, you know, bull markets and bear markets happening almost overnight. And if we really break below 4,000, I mean, 3,000 again, I think we'll have a pretty nice looking head and shoulders top. In, in Bitcoin. And the projection would be a move down to about 1,000, which would you know put Bitcoin well below, again, the price of one ounce of gold. And we'll see what happens. You know, If that's the end of the bull market, I think it'll look pretty suspicious that it is the end. And I think this could happen very, very quickly, given how fast these uh, cryptocurrencies move. You know, I think there was some more bad news coming out of China as far as restricting the ability to trade these things uh, that so far the markets seem to be ignoring. But if you looked at how Bitcoin traded down from 5,000 to 2,900, how quickly it went down, I mean, there wasn't a lot of support there. There was some big selling, and then the selling subsided for a bit. You had this rally, uh, but who knows? I mean, there could be a lot more selling coming. And of course, a lot of the people who bought into the decline, they may be traders. The people that bought this market in free fall when it was down 40%, how do we know that we didn't buy those Bitcoins just to turn around and sell them? So they could be unloading them, too. So you could have a lot of spec selling from people who who took a punt, you know, and, and tried to buy an oversold market, hoping to sell a bounce. And then other people who have been trying to liquidate. So we'll see. I think there could be a lot of downside. It should be an interesting 
Uh, interesting conference, especially if the volatility kicks up while I am at the conference. Speaking about markets or volatility, not much volatility in the U.S. stock market. It keeps rising. I think the Dow Jones hit a, a fifth consecutive record high today. The market continues to ride. I think they're saying people are excited about the Fed meeting, the FOMC meeting that starts tomorrow and concludes on Wednesday. And nobody expects a rate hike, and there's not going to be a rate hike. But what everybody is looking forward to is the Fed outlining, I guess, its strategy for quantitative tightening. Now, they haven't actually used those words yet. I use those words because what they're going to do is they're going to shrink their balance sheet, which right now is pretty much as large as it's ever been. It's just over $4.5 trillion. So the balance sheet is as large as it's ever been ever since the Fed done QE. So we're at the peak of the balance sheet right now. And the idea is the Fed is going to lay out some type of timetable or a roadmap or something of how it's exactly going to shrink this balance sheet. Now, I don't know why the markets are excited about the prospect of a plan to shrink the Fed's balance sheet, because if the Fed actually shrunk the balance sheet, the markets would not like it, because it would put dramatic upward pressure on interest rates, which are not good for stocks. Also, uh, GDP forecasts are coming down. We had big reductions late last week in the uh, GDP forecast. A lot of it, too, was from bad economic data that happened before the hurricanes. But now that we've got the hurricanes, that bad economic data is going to get even worse. You know, they are tallying up the damage already from Irma and Harvey, and it is enormous. And, you know, speaking about real estate, there are a lot of people who didn't have flood insurance. And the question is, what are they going to do with their houses? Are they going to borrow more money uh, with low interest rate government loans and be deeper underwater? I mean, now this time, literally deeper underwater or figuratively, rather, uh, or they'll be underwater in more ways than one. Are they really going to do that, or are they just going to walk away from their homes and just give these uh, underwater uh, houses uh, back to the banks, right? This is what a lot of people did, you know, in their real estate collapse when they mailed in their keys. They had jingle mail. You know, if you already have minimal equity, remember a lot of people already have no equity, or if they bought their homes, they put down 3%, and, you know, it costs you 5% to sell a house. Uh, and now all of a sudden, if you have a lot of damage, and, uh, you know, what's the point of spending the money if you have no equity anyway? Uh, maybe the best thing to do is uh, leave. And so this could be a bigger problem for the banks who get stuck with a bunch of real estate. Uh, and now the real estate, of course, is they can't even sell it because before they can sell it, they have to spend money fixing it up. So uh, this is, you know, this could be a much, much bigger problem. Then, of course, you know, the problems if, if this hurricane hits uh, Puerto Rico and does a lot of damage, the U.S. is going to have to pay for it, right? I mean, Puerto Rico's broke, and they can't deny Puerto Rico money if they're giving out money to everybody else. And, of course, you know, this hurricane, I mean, it's possible it could hit the U.S. I mean, right now, all the, the forecasts show it's going to veer up north, and it's never going to intersect uh, the, the mainland USA. So it probably won't, but who knows? I mean, anything could happen. Uh, but, I mean, it'll be do enough damage to, the, to Puerto Rico and potentially to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, that that can add, uh, you know, more money to the cost of the the hurricane bailouts. But with all this bad news about the economy, why is the Fed going to try to make it worse by shrinking its balance sheet? Because the budget deficits are already going to explode because all the hurricane relief money needs to be borrowed. Right now, the Republicans, Trump is promising to roll out uh, their tax cut plan by the end of the month. And maybe it's going to be a joint effort with the Democrats. And they've already said 
it is going to increase the deficit. It is not going to be revenue neutral. It's just going to have net tax cuts. And if it's a deal with the Democrats, it's not only going to have big tax cuts for the middle class, it's going to have big increases in government spending beyond what we're going to be borrowing uh, to pay to repair the hurricane damage. It's going to be new infrastructure spending. It's going to be new money for the military. Who knows if we get money for the wall, whatever. Maybe it's going to be money for everybody because it's all going to be you know, the Democrats and Republicans coming together to basically, you know, uh, fill everybody's uh, uh, stocking with Christmas goodies for the voters. So that's going to blow the deficit up. How is the Federal Reserve going to add to the pressure? Remember, if the Treasury is going to borrow more money, that's more bonds that are being offered for sale. Now, if the Federal Reserve is not only not buying any of those bonds, which it normally would do, but if it's shrinking its balance sheet, then it can't buy any of them. So now the federal government, the Treasury, is going to have to go into the private market to sell you know, well over a trillion dollars worth of uh, treasuries to finance next year's uh, budget deficit without any help from the Fed. But not only is the Fed not going to help, they are going to be in competition with the Fed because not only will the U.S. Treasury be trying to unload treasuries, but the Federal Reserve will be doing the same thing. Or, in other words, if the Federal Reserve refuses to roll over the maturing bonds, or refuses to reinvest the interest payments that they earn, then the Treasury is going to have to sell those bonds too. It's going to have to sell enough bonds to repay the Fed in addition to finance all the new borrowing. And so that's going to put dramatic upward pressure on interest rates unless the Fed changes course, which is what I completely expect them to do. So all this talk about how they're going to shrink the balance sheet, it's not going to shrink. The balance sheet is going to explode to new highs. I mean, will they get a few uh, maybe superficial shrinkages in there where they, you know, they allow it to shrink a tiny bit just, you know, to show that they're doing it, just like they raised interest rates a tiny bit, but never really raised them to a normal level. I mean, they may be able to get away with a small reduction just to kind of show that they can do it, just to kind of make things look as if they're on track. But I don't even know if they're going to get that far. Because the economic backdrop is deteriorating pretty fast. I don't know that the Fed wants to push on it by actually uh, going forward with this. But in any event, the markets don't seem to care. They seem to be all excited to hear about it. And so we'll see how they react uh, to what the Fed has to say. But again, regardless of what the Fed has to say about they're not going to do anything. Or again, if they do anything, it's simply going to be to create the impression that they're doing something, that they're going to follow through with their plan, but nothing is going to happen because before they get even a tiny fraction of the way, they're going to have to reverse course because they're not going to allow interest rates to spike. They're not going to allow the entire phony house of cards economy to collapse, except to the extent that they might allow a little bit of a collapse so they can make Trump look bad, right? And so that may be the, the needle they're trying to thread just cause enough problems to make problems for Trump, but not let it be so bad, right, that it, it, it reflects badly on them because they're still worried about their own reputations and they still want everybody to think that, you know, they've got all the answers, that their policy works. So they got to try to make it look like everything was great, but then Trump screwed up a good thing and now they can come to the rescue once again but you know we got to get rid of trump because he's very dangerous because all these free market ideas that he has all these all this deregulation you know this is causing this big problem and we need you know of course we need the government to take control of these markets so we don't have a repeat 
of 2008, right? That's their standard line, and that's what they're running with, and I think that is the narrative that they want to perpetuate. Meanwhile, the price of gold has been doing the opposite of the stock market, right? While the stock market has been rising in anticipation of the Fed's announcement, the price of gold has been falling. And in fact, uh, we've been falling all the way back now just above the uh, 1300 support level. Remember, 1300 was resistance for quite some time for, uh, for the dollar, I mean, for gold. And then we spiked up. We got a little bit above 1350, right? We took out the high from the evening that Trump was elected. So we went all the way back up there. And ever since then, we've been pulling back. And we were down about 12 bucks today. Right now, we're at 1307. And again, I think that this 1300 level is really where the support is. Not that it couldn't trade uh, briefly below it, just like the initial move on Bitcoin, right? It didn't stop right at 3000. It went 29 and change. And then had a big rally. So I think it could it could you know, dip below 1300. But I really don't expect it to make a big move below. And if that happens, then, you know, maybe we're going to have more of a short term decline than I believe. But at this point, I think 1300 is going to hold as support because it held so long as resistance. And I think we just need to get this Fed meeting out of the way. And then the markets can take gold higher, because I think regardless of what the Fed says, it's bullish for gold. And of course, they're never even going to follow through with anything that they say if they're talking about actually shrinking the balance sheet. But it's possible that they might let the markets know that they don't have any immediate plans to shrink it, that they're kind of playing it by ear and they haven't made a firm decision yet. And they're and they're monitoring the events. Maybe they can use the hurricane. Right. Maybe that maybe that's an excuse. You know, they have because obviously that's an act of God. I mean, it's nothing that they could have forecast. And they, hey, you say, hey, you know, we're going to just wait a little bit, see what the damage is from the hurricane before we make any decisions. Maybe that's an excuse that they can use to save face if they're looking for one. It's certainly out there. And I think to the extent that they come up with an excuse uh, for procrastinating on the shrinking, then that is going to be very, very uh, bullish for gold. Interestingly enough, we haven't gotten much strength of the dollar. Gold has pulled back, but the dollar hasn't gained much. I mean, we're up slightly today. We're basically bang on 92. I mean, we never got below 91. So we're still pretty close to the lows for the U.S. dollar index. So the dollar is not sharing in the enthusiasm, you know, that is causing the stock market to rise or the price of gold to fall off. So I think the dollar is looking increasingly vulnerable, you know, more and more news now coming out, you know, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's in uh, Venezuela or obviously now North Korea. But countries are coming out and saying, look, we're not going to use the dollar. We're going to find ways around the dollar. We're going to price things in other currencies. We're going to transact in other currencies. So all of this is weighing heavily on the dollar. And, you know, so even with this enthusiasm, this is a minimal, minimal rally that the dollar is seeing. And so I think we're just setting ourselves up for a big decline. In fact, the fourth quarter of this year should be particularly problematic for the dollar. I think that in years where the dollar is weak, it's typically very weak in the fourth quarter, October, November, December. These have been very, very weak years, I think, for the dollar in the past when the dollar was, in fact, declining. And so I think this could be uh, no exception to that. I think we could see a lot of weakness in the dollar and the inability of the dollar to rally with everything else that's, you know, rallying, right, shows me the underlying weakness that there is. And generally, you know, when you get something that's oversold and the dollar did get oversold, it had a big drop, you know, you might expect a bounce. And there was none. I mean, we are working through the oversold condition 
not with the dollar rallying and, and recovering some of what it lost, but we're just working it out over time where the dollar is just spending time consolidating its losses, but not recovering really any of it. So I think we're just forming a continuation pattern, buying some time, working over that condition, and we're preparing ourselves for the next leg down. And to me, I think this is coming. You know, I've talked about this before on the podcast. I continue to see Euro-Pacific clients throwing in the towel on their portfolios. I mean, it happens almost daily uh, that somebody decides to close their account. And, you know, they don't even look at the fact that, oh, they're up 16 percent, 18, 19, 20 percent this year. Um, they're still, you know, looking over the last four or five years and thinking, oh, I was better off in the U.S. stock market. You know, I had a, a client today who closed their account and he was going to give it to some fidelity broker to manage him said because the fidelity broker looked at our account. and He said, oh, this is way too risky. This is a very aggressive account. And of course, this account is my dividend payer strategy, which right now is up better than 16 percent on this year. It's actually my most conservative and defensive uh, separately managed portfolio. But the Fidelity broker looked at it and said, oh, you can't have this portfolio. This is way too risky. This is very aggressive stocks. These, these are conservative stocks. Right? These are utilities. These are property stocks. These are telecoms. These are uh, uh, pharma. These are tobacco stocks. These are high yielding stocks. These are lower PE stocks. These are low beta stocks. The only thing that made them look risky from the perspective of this fidelity broker who doesn't know anything, is that they're foreign, right? So as far as he's concerned, oh, what, oh, this this stuff is really risky. This is all foreign stocks, right? But the point is that these stocks, I think, are much safer than the U.S. stocks that this guy is going to put them in instead. I mean, obviously, if I bought a client a portfolio of U.S. utilities and U.S. real estate trusts and and all these defensive stocks, Right. The Fidelity broker would say, oh, yeah, this is a very conservative portfolio. Well, I've done the same thing. It's just not in the United States. The stocks are in Singapore, New Zealand, in Switzerland. Right. They're in other countries that I think are safer than the United States. I think their economies are in better shape and I think their currencies are going to retain more of their value. Now, is there more volatility in these names? Yes, because of the foreign currency. But obviously, if somebody in Switzerland were to buy a portfolio of all U.S. stocks, the same type of stocks that I'm buying in other countries. If someone in Switzerland bought those same stocks in the United States, the very same stocks that this Fidelity broker is telling my former client that um, you know that these stocks, these are these stocks are really safe. Well, from the perspective of someone in Switzerland, they're extremely risky because now they all have currency risk. They're all going to move with the U.S. dollar. So these mainstream brokers do not understand, uh, you know, where the risks are. You know, I asked this particular client you know, what is the Fidelity guy going to do with your money? Because, you know, if you don't want my strategy, you know, I, I can I can buy you some U.S. stocks if you want. I'll buy the ones I think that'll go down the least. You know what? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't just invest internationally. I mean, I advise that because I think that's where the best returns are going to be. But if you don't want to do that, if you want to do something else, you can let me know what you want to do and I can do it. And he didn't even know what he was going to do. I said, I said, what type of stocks is this Fidelity guy? Because he was going to manage the money for him. And I said, well, what's his strategy? What is he going to do? And he said, I don't even know. He had no idea what he was going to do. Yet somehow he thinks it's more conservative than what I'm doing. I don't think it's conservative at all. I think he's going to go down with the ship. You know, these most of these brokers that manage other people's money, A, they don't even have any money of their own. 
they're giving advice to people about managing money when they don't manage their own. Um, and all they do is they, they tow the party line. It's a cookie cutter, mindless way to invest. They just have these static formulas. How old are you? Okay, this percentage in U.S. stocks, this percentage in, in bonds, this percentage in foreign stocks, and then they just buy the indexes. They buy a basket of stocks. They don't bother to do any homework. They don't try to separate the wheat from the chaff. They don't see, hey, where's the value? Which companies are, you know, are better positioned? They just buy what everybody else is buying. They just buy the overpriced indexes. That's the only type of portfolio you get. And then they have the nerve to charge you money for it. They're not really doing anything. They're just, you know, following this program. And yes, it works until it collapses. It works when everybody else is doing it. So as long as we're in a bull market and as long as the dollar is strong, yes, if you're following that strategy on paper, you're going to make money. But the problem is when the bubble bursts, when the markets come down, when the dollar comes down, Everybody following those strategies is going to get killed. And what really frustrates me is I have clients that were following my strategy when it wasn't working in that the dollar was strong. So during the years where, in hindsight, they could have been invested in U.S. stocks and made a lot more money than they made with me investing internationally because of the exchange rates, now that it's turned, right, we bottomed out at the beginning of last year and we've, in general, been beating the markets for the past, you know, two years. But now that we've turned... You've got people who have been making the mistake, and it didn't just happen. It really, it really started as soon as Trump was elected. Uh, although, again, we did have a few people who bailed out at the bottom last year, you know, and then you know that stopped because we had these huge returns in the first half of last year. But then after Trump won, I noticed the big move, and then you know the Dow's above twenty thousand, lots of headlines. People are getting all excited. People are getting all giddy. You know, everything's going to be great. Trump's going to make America great again, so it's time to buy stocks again. So a lot of my clients who had sat out the U.S. stock market for the entirety of the rally that happened under Obama because they were worried, now all of a sudden uh, they feel more enthusiastic. And I feel particularly bad for them because they're missing out on, on both bull markets. They missed out on the bull market in the U.S. stock market, and now they're about to miss out or they're missing out on the bull market internationally. But unfortunately, they're going to they're going to ride the bear market down in the U.S. stock market or more importantly, the U.S. dollar, because even if the U.S. stock market manages not to collapse, you know, which would be a big feat because it's so overvalued. But even if it manages not to collapse, it's only because the dollar collapsed instead, because the Federal Reserve printed all these dollars to prevent the market from crashing. But it means the gains are going to be an illusion. They're just going to be inflation. They're not going to be real gains, whereas our strategy is going to benefit dramatically. The gains on international stocks, on emerging markets, on commodities, on gold, are going to be enormous if I'm right. If the Fed has to pull out the monetary stops right, and open up the floodgates in order to prevent uh, the markets from imploding, the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, in order to finance these massive deficits that are sure to follow this next economic downturn, the tax cuts, the stimulus spending, they have to sacrifice the dollar. And when that happens, that's when we get paid. That's when my portfolios finally uh, kick in, right? All the preparation is worth it. And I, you know, I used this analogy before, but I've been preparing for this, you know, category five economic hurricane uh, for years. You know, I prepared way in advance. It is going to hit. And I'm afraid that a lot of the clients who have given up on the strategy because they've been suckered into the mania in the U.S. stock market and, they, and some other broker has been able to convince them that, you know, my stocks are too risky, that my strategy isn't right because, you know, oh, well, you would have been better off if you were in the, uh, 
the U.S. stock market. Well, so what? Sure. Yeah, they would have been better off. You know, they would have been better off if they were in Bitcoin, right? Does that mean you put all your money in Bitcoin just because, you know, you would have been better off in Bitcoin for the last five years? I mean, you'd have been better off in Bitcoin than just about anything else, right? So obviously anybody can look at a chart of Bitcoin and say, hey, look how much money you would have made in Bitcoin if you only bought it five, six years ago. Does that mean you should put everything into it now? I mean, it makes as much sense as getting into the U.S. stock market based on the same uh, logic. You know, there was a lot of risk in the U.S. stock market. Just because the risk didn't blow up doesn't mean it wasn't there. You know, so just because people who bet big on the U.S. dollar and the U.S. stock market got lucky and the bottom didn't drop out doesn't mean they weren't taking a lot of risk while they were in those portfolios because it could have happened. It could have happened sooner. It didn't. But now those same people, you know, if you get back into that trade or if you, you know, you're assuming that risk and the risk is even greater now than it was before because the bubble is even bigger. And of course, we're closer to the point when it's going to pop. I don't know exactly when that when that day is going to come, but I know we're getting closer and closer. I know we're a lot closer now than we were a few years ago when this particular guy set his account up. So if he set his account up years ago because he was worried about the U.S. economy and because he was worried about the dollar and he wanted a solution, he wanted to protect themselves, he wanted to profit from the markets correcting those imbalances, then what's changed? All the problems now are bigger than they were then. The need to have this my portfolios is stronger now than it was then, yet people have thrown in the towel and they're taking a different approach simply out of frustration, out of greed out of fear, whatever it is, whatever it's causing people to make these emotional decisions, it's unfortunate. So I'm doing the best that I can uh, to keep people from making these bad decisions. And, you know, and, you know, it, what I think people should be doing now is sending more money to their accounts. They should recognize uh, the problems and be glad that the bottom didn't drop out years ago because now you have an opportunity to protect more of your wealth to have more positions abroad, to have more of your assets out of the United States. If you're already, if you already have all your assets out of the United States, then you don't have to do anything. You just sit back and relax. But if you still have a lot of money invested in the U.S., you still have an opportunity to do something about it. You still have an opportunity to fortify your portfolio before this hurricane actually strikes. Also on Friday, I had another client who closed his account. And I, you know, I tried to to save the relationship or save the account. But he called me back today to tell me that, you know, despite, you know, my analysis of what his other broker proposed to do, he was going to go through with uh, with the transfer. And this was a client who wasn't really against our strategy. He actually liked my strategy. He just wanted to work with a local broker. And I'm not sure why. I mean, sometimes there's some personal relationships that cause clients to want to work with a local broker. Maybe he's a friend of the family or whatever it is. So, But he said he told the broker to, you know, try to replicate my strategy uh, over there because, you know, he wanted to still do my strategy, but he wanted to do it at a, at a local broker. So I asked him to send me the portfolio that this other broker had recommended because he was having him sell all my funds because uh, he was at Raymond James and I guess they can't hold my funds. I'm not on their platform. So in order to move the account to the Raymond James rep, he had to liquidate all the mutual funds that he had. And, you know, he had my a wrap account and he was up, I think, uh, what was it 18, 18% year to date. It was up like, I don't know, um, 40% since the beginning of last year. So counts have been doing well recently. Uh, he was in my more aggressive wrap program. And, uh, and so, you know, was selling and he wanted to send the money. So he sent me the list of the ETFs that his other uh, advisor was going to buy. And this was going to be a managed account. And he was going to be 
uh, paying about the same fee that he was paying me, right? I mean, his rep told me he was paying less, but the rep didn't realize that I rebate the management fees. He was in my RAP program. So we charge him 2%, but then we rebate the management fees of the fund. This other guy was broker was going to charge him about 1.5%, but also the ETFs he was buying had 50%, 50 basis point management fees average. So he was still going to be paying about 2%. So he was actually going to pay a little bit more. But what was more important was the portfolio. Because the portfolio he sent me of the ETFs, I mean, first of all, there was a huge weighting to financials. I mean, a lot of European banks were in uh, these ETFs. Of course, I really don't have any exposure there. Uh, the funds had no exposure whatsoever to most of the markets that I'm in, the smaller markets like New Zealand or Hong Kong or Singapore. I mean, big, big weightings to the UK and Japan. Uh, you know, a lot of the type of stocks that are going to be more correlated with the U.S. In fact, one of the ETFs that he bought as a foreign ETF was 100 percent hedged to the U.S. dollar. So it wasn't even foreign. It wasn't even going to profit from the drop in the dollar. And, you know, there was only about five ETFs in the portfolio. And his uh, advisor was saying, yeah, Raymond James, this is just like what Peter Schiff is doing. I wouldn't buy a fund that was a hedged 100 percent to the U.S. dollar. So these portfolios look nothing like mine. Plus, they were static, right? When you buy an ETF, you're just buying a broad basket of stocks, and then nobody manages the basket. It's just static. It stays exactly the same. You're paying a fee for the manager to do absolutely nothing. All you're paying for is for the fund to be maintained, the fact that it was initially established. But there's no active management going on at all, yet you're still paying half a percent a year. And then, of course, the rep's not going to do anything either. Because the rep didn't even know anything about foreign stocks. He doesn't invest in foreign stocks for anybody else. He just had to try to find some stocks to appease this one client, you know, the, the square peg in the round hole. You know, when he was with me, he was a square peg in a square hole because I'm, you know, I specialize in international investing and I understand what I'm doing. But this other broker doesn't know what he's doing at all, right? It's like uh, asking your proctologist to operate on your heart. I mean, he doesn't know anything about hearts. He's, a, he's still a doctor, but he's a proctologist. You know, you don't want to have the guy that works on people's butts working on your heart. You want a guy that works on hearts all the time. You want a cardiologist if you have a heart problem. This guy wants to have a foreign portfolio, yet, you know, he wants a broker that doesn't know anything about foreign stocks to manage the portfolio for him. And he did a lousy job of putting it together. Oh, by the way, he had no exposure to materials. There was no gold stock exposure in there. So it was very different from what I had. Uh, yet, you know, the account was transferring anyway. And again, a lot of this, I don't know, you know, what, what else goes into it other than, you know, looking backwards. But I have noticed, as I've said, uh, this big pickup in account transfers. And to me, I mean, I've never seen a more bullish indicator in my life of my strategy, right? It's a contrarian indicator. It's small investors throwing in the towel and doing the exact wrong thing at the wrong time. So while I'm I, I'm glad to see this as a contrarian indicator, and it makes me even more bullish on what I'm doing and the money that I'm going to make personally and the money that the clients who stick with me are going to make, again, I feel very bad for the people who stayed with me so long and are just giving up, you know, just before we get to the finish line. Anyway, hopefully the next time I speak to you, I am not in Puerto Rico. I get on my plane tomorrow and I make it to... Uh, to Colorado, and I will try to record a uh, podcast from there. And again, that's why the audio, you know, I forgot my mic, my traveling mic. So I have been uh, doing these uh, recordings just right off my MacBook uh, laptop. So that's why the quality, again, is not up to snuff. So you don't have to bother to complain about it.
I know, I know. And uh, I'll be back in my studio. Oh, and by the way, speaking of studios, the governor of Puerto Rico is going to be uh, broadcasting on CNN tomorrow morning from my studio here in Dorado, the studio I have in my office. I guess I've got the only satellite that's going to be up and running because no one's actually used my studio before. I'm the only one that's ever used it, but somehow they found out that I had one. And so uh, Wednesday morning, the governor is going to do an interview and he's going to my, my office in Dorado and I've allowed him to use my uh, my studio for that broadcast. Now, I joked, I said they should put up the Europe Pacific Capital backdrop. So we'll see. Maybe they will, because I don't know if they don't use my backdrop. I don't really have a canned one to use. So pretty much uh, it'll be ridiculous if he's speaking in front of a black screen. So maybe he'll put up uh, the Europe Pacific uh, Capital uh, backdrop. So that'll be in the background while the governor of Puerto Rico is talking about uh, what's happening or about to happen or hopefully maybe what won't happen. Uh, to Puerto Rico.